Amen. I invite you to stay standing for the reading of God's Word. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. Um, kind of part B, we started verses 3 through 6 last week. I'll be preaching 7 to 11. But let's read 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11. The words of the Apostle Paul. This is the word of the Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning to you. It's good to be together, gathered in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, singing his praises, and now sitting under his word. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at OXA. If you're new or we just haven't gotten the chance to meet, it's a real joy to have you. Welcome, uh, like Pastor Michael already said, also to those of you who are joining us via live stream this morning. We are continuing our first Timothy series called The Dearest Place on Earth. This is our third week in this series, and last week we covered verses 3 through 6, and we read how Paul was instructing Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor, a, a spiritual son, as it were, of the apostle Paul that he left in Ephesus. Ephesus also got its own letter, the book of Ephesians. Timothy is a pastor, probably in his mid-30s in Ephesus, and Paul addresses Timothy at the beginning about certain teachers who teach different doctrine, heterodoxy. That is, they teach doctrine different from that of Christ and the apostles. And we described how these were uh, leaders in the church. They were teaching and promulgating a false message and Certain words are described, but the four main points that Pastor Scott went over last week was that they are false, they are fruitless, they are faithless, and they are loveless. That because the teaching was false, it was not from orthodox faith in Christ, it did not bear fruit, it did not promote true faith in Jesus, and it did not promote a genuine godly love for God and for His people. 
And then we ended in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 6, and it was actually the middle of a sentence. But the reason we did that is that Paul is going to make a turn as he addresses one last aspect of these false teachers in their relationship to teaching the law. And then Paul is going to take this opportunity as kind of like it's classic Paul where he's in a stream of thought and then he says something and it's like it triggers him to go in a slightly different direction to kind of pause one thing and then let me give an explanation of something regarding, for example, here, uh, the law. And so this is our big idea. It comes in a question of form and we're going to answer it through through four parts this morning. The big idea is how can we use the law rightly? How can we use the law rightly as believers in particular? If these teachers are not using it rightly, we are right to ask how do we do so? How should the Christian relate to God's law and how does it fit with the gospel? Now, Paul is not going to say everything that there is to say about the law in these verses, and so nor will I, though I hope to be helpful in filling in maybe some gaps that we may have this morning in our relationship to God's law. But let's get going here. The first part is this. How can we use God's law rightly? Number one, fire bad law teachers. Fire bad law teachers. Paul says of these leaders desiring to be teachers of the law. Now, to be clear, that's not the problem necessarily, that they wanted to teach the law. We've got in Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 34, Gamaliel is a teacher of the law who was well respected. And so that you wanted to teach the law wasn't the issue. The issue comes in a pretty scathing um, uh, synopsis of them without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Man, I do not want to be known as one of those teachers. These are teachers promulgating a message, perhaps from the Bible or from the law in a certain way, but twisting it to stir up controversy, to chase down myths and speculations. And Paul says, let me give it to you straight. They don't know what they're talking about. They do not understand the things they're saying. This is, this is the Bible teacher, generally speaking, first century, maybe a teacher of the law, who just doesn't have a grasp on God's law appropriately enough to be able to teach it in front of others. And to compound that, they probably speak pretty well doing so. They say things they don't know really confidently. Ever met the person? Full of opinions, unbounding in confidence, assured of themselves, but they do not know that which of they even speak. And in the church, this is particularly a problem because these are very likely leaders in the church in that they were in a teaching role, and yet they are going to lead people astray to one degree or another because they don't themselves have a right understanding of the things they're even saying. In particular, as Christians... Wanting to teach the law, not connecting that law to their Christian lives in the new covenant that Jesus has begun. This is a problem today. It turns out it's been a problem for a long, long time. Speaking very confidently, perhaps eloquently, probably persuasively about things they do not have, again, a proper grasp of. Now, interesting about this word understand 
Uh, that's also used in John 12:40, which is a quote from Isaiah, and it describes understanding from the heart. So, so this is not an intellectual problem, firstly. This is not, firstly, that they don't have the ability to understand. It's that they, they have not appropriated the gospel rightly. They have not assessed it to see it rightly to then be able to teach the law, let alone God's word and the gospel. And so what is young Timothy supposed to do? These are, again, confident teachers of the law, not even understanding it properly, but they are promulgating this message, leading to speculations and divisions in the church. What's this young pastor supposed to do? Well, he's supposed to fire them. Charge them, firstly, it says in verse 3, not to teach any different doctrine. You speak sternly to these teachers. You warn them probably not more than once, once it really comes down to it, and you remove them. Now, this speaks today to the importance of godly elders in a church that have the authority, ability, and courage to address false teaching, particularly when it's in their own local church. We need, and thankfully, by the way, have here those kinds of men. That kind of men is needed, and it's needed everywhere, and it's what we have here. Timothy is up against the wall, as it were, as a young leader facing a tough situation. Paul leaves him in Ephesus, and I'm charging you, demand that they stop their false teaching. They are so confident in what they say, not even understanding what they're making confident assertions about. So having brought up these law teachers, and the end of it in the first century needs to be removal from their post, and eventually church discipline should they not repent to the degree that they would be removed from the church as well for the purity of the teaching of the church, but having brought up this issue of being a law teacher, it's like Paul thinks to himself, I better expand a bit on this issue of the law in the life of the Christian to rightly assess and understand it. So how can we use the law rightly? We're going to fire bad law teachers, number one. Number two, we are going to know why the law is good. We need to know why the law is good. Look at verse 8 with me. Paul goes on and he says, now we know that the law is good. Paul is telling Timothy that as again kind of a spiritual son, a man that he has discipled for years, he knows that Timothy knows the law is good. Hey, hey Tim, you and I know the law is good. But as I'm thinking about that this week and as I prepared, I can't assume as much of all of you in the room that you would know God's law is good. It is still good today. There's a wide variety of background that's going on here now that leads me to not have the same confidence that Paul would have about Timothy. And so a few reasons why. Some of you, and I've talked to a number of you, you come maybe very recently, from quite a legalistic background. 
where there was either a direct teaching or a culture in the church that God's law continued to be a standard that you had to meet to be saved as opposed to the reality that none are righteous according to God's law and all are in need of a savior. And so you have this bar that you're legalistically driven to try to earn your way into God's good graces. Some of you, that's you. Others of you, it's absolute lawlessness. Not legalism from church background, but no church background, and we're so glad you're here, but you've basically lived a lawless life up until now or maybe up until the point you were saved when someone brought the gospel to you. The awareness that the eternal God has a law that you have broken, but many of you have lived a pretty lawless life, and so the law was seemed to be bad every time it came up, and others still, you come from churches that well, frankly, cherry-pick verses and make messages out of them so that you don't have a biblical depth about you in your background yet, more the happy, clappy kind of places that you might have come from that don't really promote an understanding of God's law at all, let alone that it is good in our lives still. And so, Paul qualifies this statement with, we know the law is good if we use it lawfully. And I appreciated the threefold description from the reformer John Calvin, who described the law being good in these three functions. How we can understand the law is good with its three main functions. Number one is this, punitive. The law has a punitive function, that wickedness and condemnation are described in God's law such that all are sealed up as guilty according to the law of God. No one is righteous. None seeks after God according to his law. And so it pushes us to an understanding of a need that we have for someone to intervene for us. We need a savior. Galatians 3 calls it a tutor. The law is a tutor to need a savior. Number two, a deterrent. The law functions as a deterrent. It restrains wickedness to a certain degree by virtue of describing law, uh, sin according to God and by virtue of bringing an understanding upon sinful men and women of the guilt of their sin, of the violation of God's good standards, that it is a deterrent as well regarding sin. And then lastly, it has an educative educative, I had to say that several times this week, function. It teaches the believer how to live an honoring life before the Lord. How do you bring honor and glory to God? How do you know his moral will? You understand his law rightly as a Christian, but it has an education function. It shows me God's good will, and I have the power by the Holy Spirit now indwelling me, being born again by God as his child now, so that I want to walk in his ways and have the ability to do so. It instructs me in my life as well. So Paul qualifies the law is good if, and it's an important if, if one uses it lawfully. Because these law teachers, or at least these ones wanting to be law teachers, were not using it lawfully. And we could understand that by analogy that you can use the Bible unbiblically. 
Pastor Scott talked about that two weeks ago. You can use Bible verses and teach ultimately in an unbiblical manner because it's not faithful to the true message of the Bible. But how can Christians use the law unlawfully? Let me give you two primary reasons. One would be already mentioned that you lean in to a works-based salvation, that you still use the law as a measuring stick to achieve salvation. But more common, I would say, is going to be a misunderstanding of the ways that God has revealed how the law functions differently under the new covenant established by Jesus. And this is not going to be a time where everything gets said. I would direct you to the book of Hebrews as a good place to start when it comes to understanding this biblically. But here's a few realities. For example, Jesus has put an end to the sacrificial system for sin because he is our atoning sacrifice. Jesus has put an end to the role of high priest, humanly speaking, because he is our high priest. Jesus put an end to requiring that we would go to a temple because God's spirit indwells every believer and the church, 1 Peter 2, makes up this living reality as a temple of God and that we are a kind of priesthood now all together ministering the presence of God to one another and even to the world. Jesus is the substance, the fulfillment of many things in the Old Testament law which were shadows back then. He's the substance, the fulfillment of them. And then there was this, there are many laws that were marking Israel, marking Israel out as God's chosen people to make them wholly distinct from the surrounding pagan nations, including things like dietary laws that we do not have to specifically follow. There are laws that do not correspond precisely into our day or circumstances, but we need to understand the general equity principle of the law, such that even if we are not under every scruple or example of what's called case law in Leviticus, for example, in the Old Testament, we can find a general equivalency in loving our neighbor and in honoring God. So we say with Paul, the law is good, provided as Christians we are using it lawfully. And thirdly this, how can we use the law rightly? We need to know for whom the law is laid down. We need to know for whom the law is laid down. Do you ever use the word whom correctly in a sentence and you're like, just nailed the grammar on that one. Is there a teacher in the room to confirm? Thank you, Monica. Just felt right when I put it down. It's like, let's go for it. Know for whom the law is laid down, okay? Paul continues here. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And then he says this, understanding this, Understanding this, we've got to comprehend this, Paul says. It's very important. Who's the law laid down for? Firstly, by way of a negative, it's not laid down for the just, Paul says. It's not laid down for a morally good people. The law exists because of sin and sinners who sin. 
The law shows God's holy character, his standard of righteousness for relationship with him, to be in covenantal relationship to him. So Paul is not saying, hear me, there is a category of like 10% of humanity who is just naturally just. They are righteous in and of themselves. That's not who the law is for. Paul is not doing that. This is by analogy like when Jesus said he didn't come to call the righteous but the sinner. He didn't come to call the healthy but the sick. Spoiler alert, no one's healthy. Without Jesus, no one's righteous. So, so it's by analogy to say he didn't, he didn't create it for people morally good, but rather all are under the law. Romans tells us they are shut up under the law because of condemnation and guilt before the living God. So it's not laid down for a just people. Rather, Paul continues right on. And what he's going to do is he's firstly going to give six words to describe who the law is laid down for. These six words operate as three pairs. So let's read them and then I'll describe them. He says it's laid down for not the just, but rather for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, and for the unholy and profane. Let's stop there. So he's pairing these together. He says the lawless and disobedient, that is, those with no regard for God's moral will and no self-control over their lives. Secondly, the ungodly and sinners, these are those who dishonor God in their hearts and do not regard him as an authority over their lives, nor a standard for their right character. And then the unholy and profane, they are the irreverent, what we might even call thoroughly secular. They are profane, that nothing, nothing is holy. Nothing is regarded in their life as holy or mattering regarding divinity or God. Now, left to ourselves, all six of these words describe the trajectory of our lives in sin. We might say, well... That sounds like a lot of really bad people, those six words. And I can grant you, by the world's standards, you may be considered a nice individual. But if you are unregenerate, meaning you have not been born again by the Holy Spirit to believe and receive in Jesus as Lord, you are in this category that these six words describe. Again, not to the extremes per se. You may not have gotten all the way there in your life, but in your heart, if you are rebelling against God and his authority over you and you have not humbled yourself before the Lord Jesus, calling out to him for mercy and trusting in his person and work for your own salvation, this describes your position before God. And if you are a Christian, the humbling effect should be that this used to describe where you were. This is who the law is laid down for. These categories of people, all of which, again, left to ourselves, praise God, we're not, but left to ourselves, this is an adequate description, like Ephesians 2 that we already read, this is your testimony of who you used to be. And then Paul continues... And he continues into a list of 
um, six different specific sins. Now, what I want you to understand is that this is the kind of list that often gets Paul in trouble and can easily get preachers in trouble as well, given our current mood today. Paul's got a number of these lists, but you have to hear me. These are not random. And then further, if you want to love 1 Timothy 1.15, look at it with me. We'll be here next week. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If you want to love that verse, you need to love our verses today. Not just tolerate them. You need to receive them and believe them because without understanding sin, you will not understand or comprehend the gospel appropriately. Jesus Christ did indeed come into the world to save sinners, and this is a description of sin and the sinners who sin. It describes those Christ came to save. It describes any number of you in this room, either currently or formerly. And by way of introduction to this list, let me also say that the Bible will offend in every culture around the world. Are you aware of that? The Bible always cuts and offends the cultures of the world. Every culture today around the world and every culture that has ever been since the beginning of time is offended somewhere in the message of the Bible precisely because it is not only a derivative of a certain culture and time, but it is from God himself. It is inspired, it is perfect, it is pure, and no culture on earth is. And because culture is the reality of sinners and our character and what we prioritize, the Bible will offend and where the Bible offends here today in our Western 21st century, it does not offend in vast portions of the world today. But where it doesn't offend us, and we yes and amen those bad sins, it offends other places. So understand that there's a cultural conditioning to be offended by certain parts of what I'm about to go through and not other parts. And as we'll get to, that is the height of our arrogance wanting to be the determiners of what actually is legit in God's word. So you ready to go? I feel like I always ask you guys, are you ready to go? Like, I'm, I'm sorry for you, but you should be sorry for me as well. Okay. You need to know this before we get going. Paul is ultimately expanding upon the Ten Commandments here. Specifically, commands 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Paul is not being random. Paul is not miscellaneously cherry-picking random sins he especially doesn't like. This is directly related to the law, particularly the Decalogue, the beginning, the foundation of God's law. This is an expansion on commands 5 through 9. He goes in order. And we need to understand this so we don't again think Paul has an axe to grind with any of these. He is teaching us today the fundamentals of God's law. And I need you to understand that God's 
Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, has an expansive application. In fact, much of Leviticus and other uh, portions of the law is like case law. It is expanding upon and describing the Ten Commandments, and this is what we see. So he's given the categories, and then he's going to give the specifics. And to the parents in this room with young ones... I want to warn you, with several minutes' notice, we're going to be getting into some things really clearly. Not vulgarly at all, but really clearly. And that's up to you if they are age-appropriate to hear this. They may not be listening to me at all. I know. I've had my kid. I've had my kid here too, all right? I get it. But also, if they're about 10 years old, if they're in public school and or if they have a phone with social media, none of this is going to be the first time they've heard it. You aware of that? I hope so. So you're welcome if I lead you to some conversation today. So here we go. Command number five relates to those who strike fathers and mothers. That comes from honor your father and mother. But there are those who abuse their elderly parents. The law is laid down to condemn that sin. Those who abuse their own fathers and mothers. Not much commentary needed there. Command number six relates to murderers. Very specifically, I think we know what that is. That's the sixth command in the Ten Commandments. It's very straightforward. You shall not murder. Then we get into the seventh command, which is you shall not commit adultery. And Paul uses two Greek words that we render the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. From the seventh command, you shall not commit adultery. So he first says the sexually immoral, which comes from the Greek word porneia. P-O-R-N-E-I-A is how you would put it down in English, porneia. It's used 25 times in the New Testament, and it is intentionally broad in its application, such that all forms of sexual behavior and expression outside of or in addition to marriage between one man and one woman is included in the word porneia. And so, heterosexual sins of all kinds, outside of, or before, or in addition to marriage, are in this word, porneia. Do not commit adultery has as its foundation this. God has created sex and marriage. God is the authority over sex and marriage properly defined. And any redefinition of sex and marriage is false and to be rejected by faithful Christians and faithful churches if it goes against God's definition of sex and marriage. Sex is to be expressed and enjoyed in the context of one man and one woman, biologically, by the way, defined as such, in a covenant relationship before God until death should separate them. That means heterosexual, monogamous, and exclusive. That is marriage in God's eyes. And so every form of sexual behavior and expression that goes outside of this is sin. And so this includes what you do in your single or your dating life before marriage. This includes pornography, this includes adultery, this includes open marriage, this includes the oddly popular thruple business that's going on these days. And anything else that you can make up 
when it comes to heterosexual sin. Porneia also includes, and it covers by general terminology, all of the letters being pushed upon our society right now in the sexual revolution of the last 50 years. I imagine you are aware that L, G, B, and T are not nearly enough any longer. Such that Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, along with thousands of others, have been using the following acronym, 2SLGBTQQIA+. Two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual. And of course you need the plus still. It's a wonder why the letter P has not made its way in with as popular uh, as polyamory has become and pansexual. Even pedophilia. Because the exact same logic logic so-called, that they're using for other things, pedophilia fits right in there, y'all. We've been saying it for years, and it is increasingly the case being made. God, in his manifold wisdom, gave one commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And the expansive application of that command fits everything in our current day. Now, Paul decides, though, to get even more specific. He uses a general word, and then he uses a very rare word called arsenikoites. And it's the, Eng the English rendering is men who practice homosexuality. Arsenikoites is the word. Paul is credited with uh, creating that word. There has been no discovery of that word in ancient Greek literature before the first century New Testament where Paul used the word arsenikoites. It comes from two words. Arsenos means male, and koites means lie or bed. And so very plainly, it would be those who bed males. Now the question that arises, if Paul created the word, is what did he mean by the word? And liberal scholars, in air quotes, want you to believe that because he made the word up, there's no way we can have confidence to know what Paul really meant. And they're going to spin master this word to mean any number of things, and they're going to pull from the 4th century AD back into Paul to make it mean something less than what Paul clearly meant. We know where Paul got the word. Do you want to know? He got it from his Old Testament. The Greek Old Testament is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is what every first century Christian and Jew, most likely, outside of knowing Hebrew, they would have known Greek, and the Greek was trans translated out of Hebrew. It's called the Septuagint. And in Leviticus 18.22, it reads, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And in the Greek Old Testament, the word lie is koites, the word male is arsenos. Paul, being a fanatic about God's word, even before he was saved, being a law-loving, zealous, probably had nearly the whole thing memorized. 
He knew where to draw from this word that he decided to create, Leviticus 18.22. He puts the two words together, arsenikoites. It clearly is describing the sin of, in this case, male homosexuality. Now, the only other use of this word is in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And we went through this when we went verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. You can go find that message yourself. But let me read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul writing says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now here, Paul clearly delineates his expectation and such were some of you in the church. And so this list, like the list in 1 Timothy 1, describing real sin before God is all forgivable. He expects it to be part of people's testimonies in the Christian church. And such were some of you. You used to be marked, characterized, identified by these very realities. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. By faith in his work for you, you have been changed, restored a right relationship with God. We have to understand that in, if we're going to love the gospel, and we should, we must know and submit to the truth of God's law that expresses sin for what it is. And then we have to know it's all forgivable, and hear me, it's all able to be left behind. And so it, can the abuser become a Christian? Yes, can the murderer become a Christian? Yes. Can the sexually immoral, the male who practices homosexuality, become a Christian? Yes and amen. Because of the power of the gospel, and hear me too, by the words of Jesus, it is expected to be left behind. It is expected to be rejected once we are Christians, such that there is no such thing as a gay Christian precisely because God does not allow you to identify yourself by your sin before your identity in Christ. And so you are not an adulterous Christian either. You are not an idolatrous Christian either. If you were a Christian, even with same-sex attraction struggles, you have a sinful proclivity to these things according to your fallen nature. We will walk alongside you, hear me. So long as you were in it with all of us related to our own sin issues that we will fight for purity. We will fight to honor God. We will trust in the work of Christ and the power of Christ to leave all of our sin behind. And we will not identify ourselves by our sin. We will identify ourselves by the power of Christ and our identity in Him. Let's keep going down the list, shall we? Back to the stuff we all agree with. Enslavers. That's the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. And pardon the brevity here, but it's necessary for time. It's just to say this is a word that describes kidnapping of people into lifelong involuntary slavery. 
God has always condemned slavery. This includes, of course, sex slavery, which is rampant in our country and in our state. And, and traditional forms of slavery like this are still rampant around the world. God has always condemned that form of slavery. Is there some nuance? Yes, today does not give us the ability to get into that, but the kidnapping of people to force them into slavery, chattel slavery often called, is condemned by God and his law. Liars, the ninth commandment, liars and perjurers, you shall not bear false witness. Again, quite straightforward. And then Paul makes this summary, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Sound is a medical term for healthy. Paul just wants to lump it all, he's got to bring it all in. I didn't hit it, bring it on in. Because if it's contrary to God's law, it's contrary to sound doctrine. Because false doctrine is like unhealthy doctrine. It leads to sick people and death spiritually. But sound doctrine leads to wholeness in Christ. Faithful biblical teaching leads to freedom in Christ. And so Paul has this summary word, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, fourthly this, how can I use the law rightly? Connect the law to the gospel. It's exactly where Paul goes. Connect the law to the gospel. I acknowledge that a lot of what I just went over was either new to you or just very hard to hear because I, I entered into direct relationships that you have, people that you love dearly who were involved in what I just covered. I understand that. But we need to all agree together to submit to all of God's word such that we do not act like we can part out the pieces that we like to hate and then we have a hard time with. We submit to God. We do not arrogantly say, well, I like three-fifths of what Chris just covered. I agree with about three-fifths of what God says right there. That is the height of our arrogance to divide God's word. May we not. Because if we end up calling evil good, any evil God calls evil, if we call it good, we are abandoning the gospel. We have to know sin and the sinners who sin if we're going to apply the gospel. Because this is what Paul gets to. This law is in accordance with the gospel. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It is not gospel versus law. The same God who gave the law gives the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we see this? The gospel does not lay down new demands. The gospel is the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus. Jesus who alone lived under the law perfectly. No sin. The only sinless person. And Jesus on the cross was treated as if he were the condemned criminal. Cursed is everyone who dies upon a tree, it says. He took the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sin and took the condemnation. He becomes our substitute in every way. Transgressing God's law requires a blood sacrifice, an atoning work, something, someone taking our place if we will be restored back to God. And Jesus Christ is our substitute. We receive the credit of his 
perfect score, as it were. His righteousness is given to all who by faith turn from self and sin, believing upon Jesus Christ for salvation. His death is credited, your sin is credited upon his shoulders. When you are repentant, you cry out to God for mercy through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. He gives you his perfect record, his righteousness. You give him your abominable record of your sin. You have eternal life, forgiveness of sin, full cleansing, a new heart, the Holy Spirit indwelling you, giving you a power to now walk in new ways, a community in God's people, the church, with which to rally around and follow Jesus Christ with, to be helped, to be discipled, to grow into the freedom that Jesus died to give you. And the law and the gospel are not at odds. Jesus fulfills the commands of the gospel, and it's his glorious gospel of this blessed, that is, happy God. He's the happy God eternally who saves The God who created, the God who called all things into existence by the word of his power is the same God who sent the eternal son, Jesus Christ, living the perfect life, dying a death in your place, rising again on the third day, ascended back to heaven where he reigns and where he gives eternal life, cleansing from sin for all who would acknowledge Jesus as Lord, turning from self, turning from false religion, of all kinds, and clinging by faith to Jesus, knowing you can do nothing on your own but trust in his work. He is so sovereign. He is so good. This is the gospel that Paul was entrusted with. It's the gospel that we likewise are stewards of, even ambassadors of, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. We have a gospel that does not shy away from the realities of sin. We call it what it is because we are submitted to God. And then we go forward with the good news to say that same God whose law condemns us, who we cannot measure up to, that same God in his love and mercy gave us Jesus Christ. Jesus who is God, who came for us and who saves today. And the Holy Spirit of God now indwelling us to walk out of darkness into his marvelous light and to do so together as the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for the reality of the law. May we not be those, God, who skirt around the realities of sin, our own sin, nor the sin that our world is desperately lost in. Because if we do, God, if we become weak at the point of what you say sin is, we become weak with the gospel. We reduce it down. We take the power right out of it if we are not calling sinners to repent. And God, you stand ready, willing, able and powerful to save. You save all by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone in this room who has a testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ, who has been born again, has been saved out of any number of things that I already talked about and plenty I couldn't cover today. Because God, you're a saving God. You're a God who changes us. Our identity is not in any adjective before Christian. 
We are Christians. Those who follow Jesus humble ourselves before you and seek your power to walk freely, to walk joyfully obeying you with a new heart to now follow you. So God, help us. And God, thank you. There is none in this room and there is none who we are connected to who your arm is short to save. So give us a burden for the lost. Give us a clarity in the gospel, a confidence in its power so that we proclaim it and leave the results to you. We pray this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.